from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports athletics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios on Glorious Locust Walk on a very close July morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and collaborators, faculty colleagues, Audi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning, Cade. Good morning, Cade. Exciting. It is exciting. Glad to be back. I've been away for a long time. You guys have been holding down the fort. Much appreciated. Shane Jensen continues his sabbatical into the... Academic year 2017-18. He will rejoin us. Shane's doing Shane things. He'll be back. Meantime, we're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. We'd love it if you would. The number is 1-844-942-7866. Again, that's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at sirisxm.com, Radio at SiriusXM.com. It's a great way to reach us if you're listening. One of the times we're replayed. We're replayed five times over the course of the week. You can send us a note any day of the week. You can also send us a note by email live because we do pick them up and we have responded. We're happy to respond real time. We are off the ground in the world of social media. We have a Twitter handle. You can follow us. It is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Any number of us jump on there periodically and tweet about things. We also follow our guests, so it's not a bad place at all to to plug into the world of sports analytics. All right, we have guests, as usual, at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. Meantime, open lines, open conversation. Guys, around the world of sports, what's caught your eye? Well, I just came back from Miami, where I went to the Home Run Derby. You did? I did. Hey. I actually gave my son a choice. He's been away for the year, so we wanted to do something together. And I gave him a choice, All-Star Game or Home Run Derby. And he chose the Home Run Derby. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about what most people would choose. In fact, I've been hearing that that's uh, the more popular alternative. So hold on, general. they sell the thing out? I mean, are, yes. Oh, it's sold yeah. Out. Well, they people sell bought, the stadium pay, out for the home run? Yeah, maybe? well, people buy it in a package. I was sitting next to three Astros fans in the who had pay, purchased uh, tickets for three days of festivities. So on Sunday, there's oh the the futures games, and there's there's various softball, different stuff. There's a softball, celebrity softball, celebrity softball, game. softball. Monday's the derby. Uh, there's actually a high school derby that actually takes place in the middle of the of the home run derby. I don't know if that was broadcast, but we did <laughs> chance to watch it. And then and then yesterday was the actual game itself. The part, of course, that's interesting, as you know, my son was asked me, but since you were there, you can tell us, I would think that if you went onto a ticket broker site and were to buy tickets for it, for the Home Run Derby, you would pay more for outfield seats than oh, you would oh, for seats. Oh, oh, I know all about this. So you would pay a lot I bought, more, right? I bought my tickets on Sunday, and I was actually tracking them. One of the one of the websites, Ticket TickPick, actually has a tracker that shows you how they've been, how the prices have been changing over time. I'm not sure why this isn't more universal. StubHub offers no such feature. Um, the other Vivid Seats doesn't offer it. And they'd been declining. I actually read an article saying that the, the Major League Baseball, which set the the retail price set them at extremely high prices. Two fifty was a minimum. Three eighty, and but outfield out, more. But outfield, okay, left field left was field. extremely expensive because most of the hitters are righty. The right field bleachers were at, were were less, but they were also extremely more expensive. I ended up being three rows from the field because that was cheaper than being on the outfield. Although being on the upper upper deck was the cheapest by far. Right. So, how many balls were hit into the stands during this day? Like, so being out there, the odds of getting a ball are actually not hundreds, not crazy, not crazy. I mean, certainly more, much more no, high, much my, higher than my normal son game. told me that 
um, Joel Embiid, yes. you know, the Sixers center, oh, yes. caught two balls. <laughs> no, no, this was no news. That I mean, he is seven foot one, so maybe he has an advantage. Was he, he, in, was he in the outfield? Yes. Okay, it's not surprising. If he was in the right seat, I mean, the truth is, is that not all outfield seats have the same probability of, of a home run going into them. They tended to be in, in clustering around the same spots. Okay. And so if you were in those spots... Across which, hitters or within it? No, within, within a hitter makes sense. With, no, certainly within... Uh, somewhat across hitters. I mean, it was interesting to see interesting. the home run derby take place live because you can really see the difference in size of the play in a way that you don't quite see when you're when you're watching well, on television. The difference in size. Size. I mean, a guy well, like Corey. Aaron, well, Aaron Judge is six seven, six eight, two sixty. He towers over I'm, everyone. Um, why is it that the Derby you see the size? Because you stand, more see than, them standing next to each other, seeing standing they, next to all the other they players. They announce them all like up on the podium, and you see Aaron Judge, who's six I seven. See. I forget if it was Bellinger, whoever it is, is my size. So he's six feet two hundred, yeah. and you're standing next to just. A mountain of a man. This reminds me, and when, I always think about this when I go to an NBA game. They, they need to have a, an average sized man. Yeah, yes. whatever that is. Exactly. 5'10, 180, whatever it is. Put him on the, as they introduce the players, there should be an average sized man on the court just to give us some just perspective. Because so, you so, have no so perspective. That's what's happening just to give you an derby. order of magnitude, we know there were eight players in the home run derby. I know Aaron Judge, who won it, I think hit 48 or something total. So there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 balls that were hit into the stands. Foul. There was, they also had batting practice. Oh, so. well, okay. So if you're including okay. those two, but live okay. during the derby, so you might be talking 500 to 1,000 yeah. balls. Going yeah. in there. Wow. If you were out in the outfield, your chance of getting catching a ball was decent. But since we're a statistics show, let me just interject on the home run derby. I'm glad, Adi, that you're here. I wanted to give you, you know, there's an article on ESPN, the standard mean reversion after the home run derby. So let me just provide you guys some stats. And of course, what's interesting about Aaron Judge being the winner is that if there was going to be someone to revert back to the mean, he is the leader in home runs now. Yeah. So part of what I was thinking driving in this morning is how do we unconfound just mean reversion which from the home run derby's effect from the home run derby's effect especially when the winner of the home run derby is the person you expect the most mean reversion from because he's leading the league just to give you some data by the way they, they took the last five years of home run derby participants i don't know if that's arbitrary or not probably not but let's say it's arbitrary 19 out of 42 of them 19 out of 42 have had a decrease in ops the second half of the season compared to the first. So if you like a test it's control. It's fewer than half. Yep, it's fewer Basically, than half. It's half. I've had a drop, okay. wait, yeah. a drop of 100, <laughs> right. 100 points in OPS. The number who have had a drop is 32 out oh, of 42. Okay. No, uh, and only 2 out of 42. It's good to look at the symmetric side. Oh, 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 oh. We need information on how they qualify for the home run competition. Well, that's, well, that's, so that's I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get coming. I'm going to it's coming in just a second. So Cuz you know what it is. It's yeah. being well, now, good. Now I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So roughly half of the it's being good in the first half yeah, of the absolutely. season, which is your point. It's not being good historically no. No. necessarily. You're good in that season. So roughly half show a decline in OPS and 32 out of 42 show a decline just entirely and 19 out of 42 as I said show a decline of 100 points and only 2 out of 42 maybe it's a ceiling effect show an increase of 100 points in okay. OPS. Well, the right qu question to start is the baseline. So the baseline has to start with what you is, kind of regression you expect ordinarily, regression that's towards the mean in either direction. And that's measured by R. In fact, the regression coefficient, R, the correlation, we think of it as correlation, actually stands for regression. And it doesn't stand for C, for correlation. It stands for regression. It means how much towards... row. No, 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 you economist. <laughs> Not at all. This comes from Galton. Galton invented the terminology in the 19th century, and he discovered by looking at a chart 
that there was this movement towards the mean, and he called it regression to the mean. And he, yeah. he invented the name R, and it stands for regression. And so if you look at how much regression there is, it's about, it's about um, to use it in percentage terms, I'm not sure that that's fair, it's about 60%. So your R is, is 0.6, which means you move down towards the, towards the, the mean by about 0.6. So just to understand, if you're, just for our listeners, if your exceedance is, let's say, one standard deviation above the mean in the first half, that's I right. would expect you to be about 0.4 standard deviations above the mean. 0.6 standard deviations above oh, the mean. Oh, so the regression effect is 40% Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Okay. That's so, why I was, I was, as I was yeah, saying, yeah, I'm sorry. Really so yeah. so yep. 0.6 above. So what, but it's, it's, your, it's your personal mean. No, you don't, your personal right, so that's, one. That's, right, that's right. Really your issue. personal yeah. one. Yeah. So what that made me think of is, does anybody here, given I believe he has 30 home runs at the break, Aaron Judge, does anybody want to revise their prediction? I made a prediction. that I was the only one here. I was the only one here that said he would hit 50 home runs. I didn't say it. I, in fact, I starkly, no. You said he would not. I exactly. I, and I, you still believe? I that. still believe not. I mean, okay. my forecast, if I recall, we made it when when Judge was about 18 home runs. That so, is correct. And he was leading the league. And I, I forecasted 42 plus or minus like 12. I had this oh. huge. <laughs> All right, I forecast you 40 50. plus. Or, no, you you did you 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 forecasted higher joking. than I did. I was going to joke 40 plus or minus 30 and no, say, no, yeah, no, of no, course no. I covered no. that in. No, I'm not talking about coverage. I had a. It, we'll talk about the estimate. Your estimate was around 50, and Correct. my estimate was around 40. Right. But I but I increased the. I covered yeah. myself because he's a rookie you, and you with very large standard some probability. Yeah. Of but let's think yes, about absolutely. But let's think about the decline that would have to happen. So he's at 30 right now, a little more than half the games, but roughly half the games. Okay, so he, well, let me ask you an important question. You're about to get to it. Let me just make it real clear. Right. The regression to the mean means you regress to some mean. So if we're going to say, if we're going to use Adi's. 0.6 correlation, for example. Correct. What are we going to regress judge to? It's not, you can't just hit his 30 with 0.6 and say, well, I'll get 18 in the second half of the year. You have to take it, you have to take the difference between what he did well, versus expectation. You bring up a great point because what most people would do erroneously, Kate, is say, well, his true rate is 30 in a, in a half of a season. And let's, no. That's the number. That's the bias number. That isn't. You got to regress back towards yeah, the truth, we which we, we don't, don't observe. We don't know the truth, right? We don't observe that. We don't observe that. So what you could do, however, is, is we, no. You could do a two. Imagine a two-step process. Imagine step one, where you have first half performance, and then you look at second half performance. Right. So you could get a prediction for what his true ability is. And then you could regress back towards that. I mean, you'd have to estimate that. Too. We need to estimate his true, true ability. Yes. The fact is, is that the only way to do that is by looking at the set of players like him. That's my story. Said, yeah, you've got to get, you've got to get. So some you got to look, you got to look at all Correct. these. You got to look at essentially rookies or first year players who who came out like, like a house of fire in their first half okay. and see what they typically do. And if you look at, even if you extend it to veterans, it's a huge drop. I mean, I remember as a kid, and I'm sure you you remember Eric when Dave Kingman opened up the season with 36 home runs at the All Star break. He did never made 50. He never 49 made 50. was his number right, that so, season. Oh and, and, and 36, <laughs> and then he ended up at 49. Wow. So he, he and 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 it's, yes, he actually ended up below average. What he, but his expectation probably was twenty yeah. in the second half. Okay, so let's we're talking about the home run derby at the All Star game, and yes. we've, we've used that to talk about regression to the mean. And by the way, regression to the mean is probably. You know, I might argue it's the single most important statistical concept for the world to understand. I think we could. It's impossible to spend too much time on this topic. Well, let me just add my, one, let me add one thing. Right. You brought up the most important point. I thought, Kate. Besides, it's an important phenomenon. How do you get into the home run derby? So the thing <laughs> is, you've selected people who have high 
what we'll call residuals or exceedances. So you've already selected the people who, let's call it, this is the way I always say, I, I worked at ETS, as every all our listeners know, for two years. Your observed number, 30, is your true number plus error. This is the classic Thurstone measurement equation. Observed equals true plus error. Oh, it's also the, the fundamental idea of yeah. statistics. Yeah, I'm just saying, right, but I'm <laughs> saying... Y was beta saying, X was I know, epsilon. but Thurstone was <laughs> okay. the first one in 1925 to write that down as a measurement Patty, equation. Patty, can we get him on as a guest? Thurstone, is he dead? I don't... I, I think... think he's I, dead. I, I, if, if we could go, get him as a guest, that would be remarkable. He wrote this in 1925, <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Um, and But again, the point is, there is going... We're selecting people based on observed... And then that's exactly the group we would expect to have the mean reversion for. So it's not just that regression to the mean happens, as Kate says. We're selecting a group yeah. for which we'd expect significant mean They're reversion. They're here because they had a great first half. So the that's only right. two p- players right. that I would expect to do potentially better, or really only one person better in the second half is Gary Sanchez. Because he was picked for last year's performance. And oh, because really? he's a Yankee oh, and they wanted him there. Yeah, yeah. That's, a nice, that's a nice way to go about it. Okay, so let's, let's wrap this up by getting a number, predicted number. We've got a, few, a little a little more time under our belt for this season on Judge, and just walk me through it. Give me some historical base rate. We know it's not right. We don't observe the truth. But if you had to pick a base rate for Judge, an expectation, what would it be? He hit 30 in the first half. That expectation would have been 18? I'm, I'm, I'm predicting. I'm, I'm saying he's a, uh, uh, at this point, given what I've seen, given what I've, his, 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 his patience, his, even his performance in the home run derby, 20, where, per half. I would say 20 per half, 20, 20 per 24 half. per half. Right. So, well, so let's go back to my prediction again. So he's at 30 right now. Yep. Let's say he's even a 20 per half guy. Let's say 20 per half. Let's say 20 per half, which would mean obviously 40 for the season. I'm sticking by my prediction of 50. Well, that's well, a, let's that's just walk a, it through. I'm already now. So You're the, above it. You're at 54. No, you're I'm saying he's a 24 no, we're, we're more than half. So it's 20. So I would go with. More. You're, taking, you're saying you should regress his 30 back towards 24. Not, not all the way. Yeah. We're not. Well, it's 20 no, no. to 24. No, no not all the way to 24. But 26. I'm saying. Like, I'm saying you're predicting now 56. No, I'm not. I'm not no, no. First of all, we're, we're over half the, 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 the game. So let's that's, pretend, that's not. Yeah, that's let's, not right. let's make it as if it were let's half. Let's make it as if it were half. Okay. So I would say. I would say. Probably I would be guessing around 50 at this point. That would be my estimate. So that's a full regression to the mean. How can you square that with... Well, that's what I do. I mean, I'm taking I'm taking his 30. He's earned them. You can't take him away. And now and you, and you, you, you... Okay, I see. So you just went with the... You just you don't use the 0.6 correlation. That might, that's what no, you no, might the, use right. if you were going to ask... If you were going to use the the baseline for the whole league. That's right. Is that right? right? No, that's okay. right. Exactly. So you've that's already adjusted. You you've given yeah, him a personal, a personal... Expectation. You're just going to go fully for that. I've for the used half. that thir- first it. half to adjust my personal. If, when he Perfect. came up in the beginning of the year, I never would have said. Now I understand. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm. I'm sticking. So real quick, just yeah. to make it clear, what is the average number of home runs in the whole league per player per season or per half? Well, this is amazing because one of the things that I had some this fun. This is a over, good year. Over, I had some fun over over the last week having a little bit of a Twitter back and forth with Rob Arthur of Five Thirty Eight on exactly what is trying to account for this blast in home runs. I mean, yeah. since the middle of 215, it has gone up every tick by every half of the season a lot, and this year is destroying last year. The average home, the number of, of players who have over 10 home runs already is hit a record. They're about to hit the all-time record for home runs, for certain, almost for sure, by the yep. end of the season. Yep. And the real question is why? And no one really quite understands People are that. saying the balls are juiced in right. some so way, ben but Lindbergh, Major League Baseball refutes that. Ben Lindbergh, who's been on our show before, he and uh, and Mitch Lichman, who's also been on our show, have written an interesting article saying it's the ball, particularly the, the 
the core of the ball. Rob Arthur has done an, a very interesting analysis to try to estimate the drag on the ball by looking at how much it slows down when it leaves a pitcher's hand until it hits the catcher's mitt because they have that data from StatCast, and you can use Alan Nathan's physics equations to figure out what the drag is. And then he can compare the drag across seasons. And then he can do that over the last eight or nine seasons, and then you create... And that's that, he has a very interesting article, and I'm trying to get the data from, from Rob. There's, there's no, there's what no, is his conclusion from that? So his conclusion is he concluded in his article that the drag coefficient has decreased, the ball is, has thinner, has smaller themes, and uh, themes. themes, and this is responsible. I'm, I'm unconvinced that that's a, 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 an explanation. What about until I, I, see more I data. of course, have read an article as well, which just said, you know, the strikeout rates are up. Yes. And people are actually swinging the bat harder and the launch angles are harder, are yes, higher. That's... And so another explanation is guys are like, look, I don't get paid to hit. I don't get paid for money ball for getting on base. I get paid to have a high ops. And you know what? I, if I strike out, so what? I'm going to drive the ball it, and it, swing it, hard. And that, and that fits with what we've, we've been talking to these guys who, who explain that players are more aware than ever about swing paths and launch angles and exit velocities. And that with that understanding, you could imagine that it would change the game. And it has. It, I mean, you can look at these these numbers. They seem to be holding up. Strikeout rates are, are through the sky. I mean, I, I'm, reading, I mean yeah. reading, I'm reading a biography of Ted Williams right now. Do you know how often Ted Williams struck out in his career? I'm, he he never mean, struck. As, he as never rate, had double digits. Rate. Never double digits. Never in a double season. Digits, no. Well, then it has to be like lower than two percent. No, 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 no. But, well, no. He, if he had bat six hundred times and he never had ten strikes. No, no, no. Ten and double digits in percentages. Oh, in percentages. percentages. No, I'm no. sorry. So we're five. He was still a power percent. hitter. It was about nine percent over his career. Okay. But Joe DiMaggio was under five percent. You don't see. They don't. They don't. Players don't. Don't perform this way anymore. It's a different game. It's a different game. This is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This morning it's Cade, Adi, and Eric still in the first quarter talking baseball because Odds was down there at the home run well, derby with his bro- with his son. So I have another question for you, Adi, about the home run derby and its design. Because one of the things we talk about in the world of business is, if you like, design, design of products or design of competitions. And so they changed the All Star Game this year. Uh, the sorry, the home run derby this year to be a round uh, a head to head competition. So the way it used to be is guys used to hit. They would take the top four. They would advance to the next round. But now, as you know, you were there. Um, guys are broken up into pairs. There's four pairs. You compete against somebody else. So wonderful, my, much right. more interesting. Well, it's it interesting. is more interesting. It's more interesting. But I wanted to ask you. It's not don't fair. You, but it's that's the point. Oh, I was less gonna, fair, more interesting. <laughs> well, that, oh yeah. All right. For well, sure. that's the part I was going to get to. Yeah. So don't we agree that this is the design that guarantees less that the true champion will oh, emerge for from sure. it. Yeah, but it, you have no idea how riveting it was. I mean, because Aaron Judge that, was almost eliminated in the first he round. Was, it was he was, and and in the first round, people snuck in who didn't belong in, and and who was Stanton was eliminated. Stanton was eliminated because he went up against a, a really nice first round that Sanchez hit, okay. and he just couldn't. Yeah, but did put you it see? Together. But you see, Stanton not hit a home run for the last one minute and twenty five seconds did, of I, his. I, I, I mean, watch that, that. that was hard to that, watch. That was hard to watch. <laughs> it was hard to watch. But it was interesting to see live. Though and this so is Stanton, Stanton hits the ball harder than anyone, including Judge. Were they reporting exit velocities? Yes, yes they were. They were only oh, on, only on home runs, though, which was interesting. They only reported live on home runs. They didn't do it on the line drives that went off the wall. And and, Why? and I don't know. 
I, I don't know. And actually, I think there's a little bias in, in either, maybe it's the physics of it or the way the hit, but line drives seem to be a little faster than the home runs that go, that are arcing. Okay. So what, one of the things that, that Judge does differently than, than, than Stanton is he hits a higher arc angle. And he hit these moon shots. Some hit the roof. Who was this? Uh, this this Judge. was Judge. You're saying Judge. Judge, yeah. Judge, to get 500 feet, you have to not only hit it hard, but have to hit it high. Am I right? They've it, never had a measured home run for, in, in a regular game that went 500 No, that's feet? not true. Mickey Mantle. No, no, no. There are measured home runs. Mickey over. Mantle has hit. Mickey not, Mantle, not, well, Mickey not, Mantle no, has no, the record. In, 536 feet is the longest what? recorded home run. Yeah, Mickey it. Mantle. Yankee, Yankee exaggeration. Well, maybe. It's been in the record books. I mean, it's... it's. Come on, they're measuring these things now. These guys are so much bigger, and they're only hitting like 497, 498. Okay, so, huge okay, so let me let me just... just I, I've studied this pretty at length. The big difference between... A, the only way you can get over five, really over 520, would be you have to have good good weather conditions. Uh, and it makes a huge difference. Who knew Mantle played in Colorado? That's so interesting. No, it's not. I mean, you have to have the wind. <laughs> you have to have the temperature. And if the wind is going... like so, the one, There you go. Dave Kingman has hit it over 530 feet. And they sure. know where it landed in, in Chicago. They yeah. can find the porch in the spot. Yeah. But there was a gale. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Okay, now we got it. Thank and of course, that. you know, what's yeah. also important to point out um, for our listeners, for those people that don't follow the Home Run Derby, is the balls are coming in only at about 65, 70 miles an hour. If they were coming in... I don't know. We've talked about this on the show. I thought we had the physicists on here, and they said it doesn't make any difference, the incoming speed. It, it, that's the smallest. It makes a very, very small but difference. But it could make Alan a difference between that, yeah. 510 feet and 530 oh, feet. Oh, sure. It could make sure. a 3 it's to 4 about 1%. Percent. No, it's not that much. About 1%. Really? Says, Only yeah. a 1%? So, so I remember, it's 5 that's to 10 like, feet. That's like a first-year guest, and, remember, and he, he, he disabused us, the discussion, he disabused but us of this intuition. Here, I got just one fact that one of our, our associate producers sent us. The ratings are up 38%. And it's attributed because of the format. Well, let's also talk about the beautiful part of the format is it used to be you, you got a certain number of misses until you stopped swinging. Now it's timed, which was also great. Great. You knew exactly. I had four minutes. You could see that if you great. had two long ones, you got an extra I, I 30 you seconds. tired after that it much does, time. No, no, the, tension, the tension in the stadium when he had 10 seconds left and he needed one. Cody Bellinger hit one. This was great. He needed one to go 440 to get it. To get Bonus the extra time. Bon- yeah, bonus. Yeah. And it was his last swing. He had th- three seconds. 446 feet. It's his last oh, that's beautiful. It was absolutely that's beautiful. Fantastic. So w- one last thing on the format. You, we talked about the, the head-to-head is less fair but more, com- more compelling. I've, I've loved for a couple of years, once I realized what it was, that NCAA golf has this great hybrid model. When they get to the finals, they play they play cumulative score, best teams' cumulative scores to get into like for the first maybe two or three days and then they switch to head to head match play against teams yep. and it and so you had this combination of it's more fair this first early rounds and then it becomes more compelling in the later rounds i, I love the hybrid i, I love don't the combination. even think i don't i would argue it's not just more compelling but in some sense what you would like to here's it's, what the only mo- the modification i would like if i could make one would be to have head-to-head, like Cade's talking about, but only in maybe the last round. Like, I'd like the first round to be everyone hits for four yeah, minutes, and I take yep. the top you want, two. That's a great, great. That's exactly no, I, I, what I, wanna... I would love, because then you feel like, all right, look, the first round screen worked. Yeah, right. And then from there, that's right. let's you know, put you know, in the head-to-head. It's, you know, it's more than just compelling. It's also, this is how we feel it ought to be determined. It ought to be yes. determined on the field. This is right. supposed to be a game of competition. Look, but also, Adi forgot to mention, I mean, this isn't really a statistics issue, but you forgot to mention what happened to Aaron Judge. So during his swings, he hit one that hit the roof. This was definitely going to be a 500-foot a home run. 
It was only with 10 seconds left did they tell him it didn't count because balls are in play at this field that hit the roof. So he's walking away, and the ref and the umpire saying, "Get back in the box! Get back in the box!" He hit the one to beat yeah. the guy with three seconds left because he thought he had won it and was walking away. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, so I remember this that. Would have been it was very tremendously. Con- it, was it was very confusing. It would have been us hugely in the stadium, controversial. We had no idea what was going on because he's starting to walk back towards right. the dugout yeah. like he's won. And they're so, by, by the way, him. what what at what rate do they hit the? Uh, how many pitches do Great they take? They can't Aaron, hit until it's until the ball is out of play. No, but I want to understand, like, what Aaron percentage Judge, of balls? Aaron 58% of his yeah. swings that he swung at okay. were home runs. Okay. 58%. Okay, now a meta question. Do, do, do y'all, how seriously do you take this? This is great entertainment. It's entertainment. And people understand well, that's what it is and that's all it is? You don't really No, no let, me, no, let me throw this back at you. I'm going to throw this back at you because we've had this conversation offline where, where you weren't exactly supportive. But the thing about the home run no, derby. I'm supportive of it, it, in a, it as entertainment. It is entertainment. But here's the thing, and I want to, want to ask you a more, a more a direct question about comparison to other sport. I believe that the skill in the home run derby is actually deeply connected to the skill that makes you a great baseball player. Okay. Now, in other sports, can you imagine something like a the home run derby? The closest thing to it is three-point competition. That's, that's it. And, 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 is right. it and, and one of the things that we've learned from this show, talking to our guests, is a three-point, what makes a great three-point shooter is what they can do when they're guarded. And that's, of course, not happening in a three-point shot. Well, home run is, well, exactly it's, goes through, Audie. They're hitting 60-mile-an-hour pitches that of are course, made. Of course, but it seems fact, to be, when you, arguably, watch it, when you watch it, you seem to see the best home seem, run hitters doing well, let me, Seam. Let me say the one thing that was noticeable from the home run derby, and please correct me if I'm wrong. The first four or five home runs from Aaron Judge were to the opposite field. And yep. you say, you started to say to yourself, this guy is, quote unquote, because he's trying to pull every one. This guy's missing his pitch by whatever fraction of a second it's happening. And it's still going 420 feet to the opposite field. That was the one noticeable difference between Aaron Judge and all of the it. other hitters. He was dro- probably a third of his home runs, including the first four or five, went to the opposite I, field. I would have thought these guys were pitching in a way that he could do whatever he wanted to with the ball. So why no, was he taking it's the, not the robot. It's not a It's not a machine pitching to him. No, these the balls are, were slightly outside, outside, and he would they go the opposite way. A little way. outside, and they just took him out. They take, and they, so okay. they hit them typically because it's a waste of time to let it go by. But occasionally they missed it. And no, by the way, okay. you could make an argument that if you're your goal is to maximize your number of home runs. You should hit them more to the opposite field if you can hit them. Be call, conditional on them being a home run because there'll be more line drives, which is probably more likely. And they're shorter. shorter and they're shorter, which give oh, again you can't throw the nice. next pitch yeah. until it's. I mean, so, J- Aaron Judge was penalized. It, like it you save time. The moonshots kill you. Moonshots moon kill you. <laughs> the best home runs were, and this is why Stanton hit 60, over sixty last year. Is he hit these line drives that went out in seconds? It was unbelievable. So what was the? Uh, this is a build-up question. What what length were the fences at this park? Big. This is a big park. Like what are they? I mean, there. It was in like the four hundreds, four twenties. Okay, here's center. a question. What? How? How close would the fences need to be for you two personally to hit to hit fifty percent of your swings? Three hundred feet. You could do it at three hundred. I could do it at three hundred. Fifty percent. Fifty percent of your swings. No, no, because I can't get. I can't lift them for half the time. I would ground out half the time and then fly out. No, I mean with practice. There's actually a story about that that <laughs> I'd like to get. There's actually an, an article written in Sports about a journalist. <laughs> yeah, Eric, I'm with you. It's like maybe a hundred feet. Maybe it, it, no. It, no, you have to. You have to practice once. Once I get the rhythm of hitting it in the air, it's not three hundred feet. Is, I agree is, with Adi. It's not hard to do it once you can actually. Once you groove it, and I mean, it might a take softball a little bit to... field is about two eighty through three hundred, and so baseball smaller. But Artie was a, a much I was, more I was a baseball player. Yeah, player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, me, it would be. 
I'm thinking 100 feet. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's to get to 50. But I want to ask you, Kate. Oh. I wanted to ask you: Is there anything like this in football that you could imagine? No, not even close. They used to play a punt, pass, and kick competition when we were kids, and it wasn't professional. They still have it. doing it. But, they probably still have what kids about, doing this. There is one sport: hockey. In hockey. They measure both speed of the shot, but they also have targets that they place at specific parts of the net in the All-Star Skills Competition, right? where guys have to hit, it's not just hit it into the goal, it's hit the upper right, upper left. Matter of fact, right. it's blocked, and there's only s- holes at certain places. So I think hockey That's would me. be the, w- the s- okay. one sport about, that, football? That, we can't do it. We can't throw it, you know, a, throw it through a, a tire, a throw swinging it through tire. tire. They do that. <laughs> That's just, you know, because it doesn't reflect the skill that really matters in the game. No, I mean, these days, they're, they're probably going to start doing things with speed because um team teams you know with the motion tracking know so much more about what players are doing and now i'm hearing reports on college teams where players know which guys are showing the highest top end speed which guys are showing the greatest acceleration the apparently the ohio state buckeyes in their spring practice put these numbers on the scoreboard and at the end of practice you can see like these are the guys who had the highest speeds these are the guys who maintained the, the top speed for the longest length of time these are the guys at the bottom of the list teams are using feedback this. teams are using this as motivation someone that studies this is this likely to be motivating towards people oh, i think hugely so hugely so hugely. these guys are so competitive they want guys who are competitive so if that's not motivating for you that's a bad selection and, you, you and, so, and the next person that we have on that studies analytics and training we need to find out is that the right way to train and secondly are you maximizing the ch- or increasing the chances of injury during this yeah. because guys are trying to beat each other in practice right you can imagine it may not be in every practice thing it might be a, a for the scrimmages or for the show or periodically you do that to try to that to see what people can do you're right, though. It could have some unintended consequences. Unintended we're, consequences We're economists enough to understand unintended consequences. Uh, so re- real quickly, as we wrap up this quarter, anything from the game? The AL1? I watched the game last the night. The AL1, Robinson Cano hit a home run to win the game. Against the Cubs, the one all-star yep. player from the Cubs. And, of course, the big issue, which neither Cade nor I realized till this morning, because I was railing on it last night during the game, but I didn't know they've changed that. The World Series is no longer no. determined by the All-Star Game because of the collective bargaining agreement. It's back to the win. Well, it's not back to. It used to be, K-Pi doesn't even remember this, it used to alternate years. Yeah. Now, then it was the winner of the All-Star Game, and now it's the team with it's the best what record. It should be. It's, it's the what team it be. with the best it, the, record. The game itself feels like an exhibition. They don't, I mean, there's all this chatting. They're, they're interviewing Bryce Harper while he's, while he's playing. That's fine. It just feels. It's fine. It, <laughs> it's it, fine. Yes, it is fine. But it it, it just you doesn't still, feel like he's really playing. Guys, you still see guys make nice defensive they plays. Do. You still see guys. Somebody, somebody threw somebody out from the outfield last yeah. night. So an assist from the outfield. Yeah, but the guy it was happens. running from first, tagging from first on a on a, a not even that 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 deep. He didn't want to be ball. out there. He wanted to get back to the dugout. Uh, no, he was just doing something adventurous just to cause a little bit of a. As you a, said, <laughs> it's one of the few sports where, as you said, your son would rather possibly go to the home run derby than the actual game. And I'm sure there are many people that bought the ticket package that went to the Home Run Derby and didn't go to the game. I don't know about that. The other end of the spectrum, did y'all see this clip from minor league somewhere where an infield, this dude hit an infield pop-up, and and all the infielders came in. Like, every last one of them came in toward the mound because it was right in the middle of the field. At the last second, the first baseman dives for it and misses it. (laughs) By the time that happened, the runner was already between first and second. They go to throw the ball. There's no one there. And then... The runner realizes there's no one at third either, so he, he goes around to third. He made an infield pop-up triple. <laughs> it was the absolute opposite love of, the the All-Star, of the All-Star game. All right, that wraps up the first quarter of our show. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Danielle Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up from the bottom of the hour. It's Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Our buddy Shane Jensen is out and about doing Shane things. He'll be back. We do two hours here live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, Sports Analytics. Coming to you from Huntsman Hall. You can join the conversation. Please do give us a shout. 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at sirius6m.com. Yeah, I just love the discussion about the design of the home of the All Star contest, the home run derby, and its impact. You know, well, I love these design type problems. I love that they've continued to tweak it. You know, that's the thing is that you you do something, you learn, and if it's not right, be willing to admit you got it wrong and change it. And I think they would admit the goal is not necessarily to find the best home, at least the way they've designed it. They would have to admit this would not be the optimal design if the goal was to identify no. the person who deserves to win the right. most. Yeah, but it's also a competition. You know, most sports do evolve a lot. I mean, if you look at football, it's still evolving, but Baseball evolved its rules continuously over yeah. about 40 years until they were set. Basketball evolves their rules. Football is still doing it. Yeah. It's actually and good. I think how, it's good. How, how much evolution do you want from going forward in baseball? Well, well is we it have z- a good is person zero, to ask. Is it zero, it's zero or, for zero me. or 1%? It's, it's, zero for me. It's, it's, conservatives, conservatives. Tell you what. I just been... want to move it back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You want to go to play 154? <laughs> no, I want to get rid of the DH. So uh, we've been talking a little baseball, and no. No, no, nobody better to talk baseball with than uh, a man in the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Wharton Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. Joining us now, Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Oreos. He's the co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, recent book he has out on performance under pressure. And uh, he's a frequent guest of our program on about every other week during the baseball season. Rick, welcome to the show. Wow, how's everybody doing? We're doing We're doing, doing great, fantastic, man. Doing Rick. great. We spent an entire half hour, Rick, you may have heard, talking about the home run derby. These guys like baseball. Right, right. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, Eric and I really enjoy it. Rick, this is Adi. Did you do you uh, <laughs> do you do you indulge all the the, the All Star Game festivities? How much did you take in? Um, I take in quite a bit of it actually, because um, I really think it's a you know it's such a celebration for you know the premier players in the game and how they're evolving, and and especially in today's game. Um, when you look at the premier players that are 25 and younger, that, that, that's an absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible. I mean, Bryce Harper, it, it's like he's a 20-year vet, and he's, what, 23, 24, 24. years old. Do you have any explanation for that? It does. People have talked about this phenomenon, and certainly some of the biggest stars in the game are these just babies. Is there an explanation for that, or just chance? Well, I, I just think the fact that I, I think because, because of how – Everything is so advanced at, at younger ages and, and in the amateur market, you know, in, in college and travel teams. I mean, there, there's a downside to it, but there's also a big-time upside. You know, so, so th- these guys are, you know, they're used to playing on big stages. 
And and when you're used to playing on big stages, you know, you're comfortable on a big stage. You know, it's that simple. Rick, you and, you recently coached the was it the Olympic team or the junior Olympic team? I remember you traveled yeah, no, with these it, teams, guys. It was, the, it, was it was called Premier Twelve, which which was it was twelve international teams. You know, Korea, Japan, Netherlands, go on and on, Cuba, um, and. Willie Randolph was the manager, and yep. it was all, all the play. The criteria was nobody in any country could have a player on the forty-man roster in the big leagues. Okay, so, so it was like there, a it's, tick it, below the the big leagues. And it was presumably these guys were, you know, most of them probably on a trajectory at least have the chance to being in the in in the bigs eventually. So it's that kind of developmental stuff that didn't used to exist i'm guessing have you seen guys move from the team that you coached into the big leagues have you got your eye on anybody from that experience um no nobody in particular you know that that really has evolved i mean there's some guys that that had had some cup of coffee in the big leagues but didn't really stay for the whole meal (laughs) um you know i mean so but there was guys on their way but 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 like a bryce harper probably would not have been a player even at that at that time probably would not have been a player that would have played on that kind of team. He would have skipped um, it, basically. To, to, he, pro- he probably would have skipped got it. Got it, got it, got yeah. it. Okay. So, so, Rick, this is Eric Brown. I want to ask you, um, for those of us that you know didn't grow up in, in baseball the way you did, could you give us an idea about the order of magnitude difference between a major league player and somebody that's like one level below, let's say triple A and then double A and then A. Like if an A ba- if if let's say the best, one of the better A baseball players came up to the major leagues, would they but that was their true ability level. Would they hit two hundred? Would they hit one fifty? Um or let's even say on your side of the mound, if you'd like, the pitcher. A great A level pitcher, would they come in and get absolutely shelled in the major leagues? How much difference is there between these different ranks? Well, let me say this, not to avoid your question, because I think there's a point I wanted to make about what's really unique. You're talking about Aaron Judge right now as possibly not being the face of the Yankees, but the possibility of being the face of Major League Baseball. As the face of Major League Baseball. So, like, Aaron Judge got more physical talent this year than he had last year. The answer is no. He's got the same physical talent. I saw I saw Aaron Judge three years ago in in Trenton when when or two years ago when he was in two or three years ago when he was in Trenton when I was the director of pitching development for the Orioles. He's got the same physical ability two three years ago that he does today. He hit 170 something I think 171 last year and struck out 50 percent of the time. What's the difference in this game? Does he run faster? Does he jump higher? Does he throw harder? Does he hit the ball harder? The answer is no to all all those questions. Is meant the mental game is what's changed. He's matured. He understands how to make adjustments. He understands how to make better decisions. You know, Rick, that's just it's surprising that a guy would evolve that much in a, in a year, especially. Well, I, I mean, just to, to, he, that's what he hit when he came up with the Yankees for the last very, very short portion of the season. I think that's, I mean, he was clearly playing under, under his ability last year when he came up. Well, that's, that's my point. My, my point is it's not the physical talent that makes the difference. It, it, it's the mental game. And the mental game is what's so critical. And, and I think what's so, I mean, when I would have conversations with our pitchers that would go to the All-Star game, the biggest point that I would make to them when they went, they said, you know, Rick, you know what do you think about this experience? I said, walk up to every, every pitcher and every player. Pro- players probably won't share as much with you as pitchers will because you, you, you'll possibly face them down the road. But 
but sit down and talk to them about why are you so good? What makes you, <laughs> what, make, what, what makes you so – it's not their stuff. It's not, it's not their fastball. It's not their off-speed stuff. It, that, that's not what makes them so good because there's, a, there's, many, there's many players and pitchers that have that physical talent. So that's my that question are, again, Rick. So tying it back to my question, just to be clear, you're saying the difference between an A-level player who – uh, may have great stuff and a major mm-hmm. leaguer. It could very well be the mental part of the game. It's not that the A level player. I'm going to go up there and they're going to look like me throwing off the mound. I mean, this is someone that could throw in the 90s. Could have all the pitches. Exactly. Exactly. You're exactly right. Right. I mean, I mean, now there's guys in A ball that don't have the physical ability to pitch in the big leagues, but the guys that do that have that similar talent. Because this is the conversation that I would always have with them. Do you need more physical talent to pitch in the big leagues? The answer is no. That's not what you need. You need you need a better mind. That that's your difference. Your mind, and I've heard said this many times. Your mind is your master. Your body's your servant. You know. So when you look at, you know, you, you listen to Aaron Judge right now. It's like you're listening to, like, you're listening to Derek Jeter. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's so polished, so professional. He's he's so grounded, and. And you can see him smile. It's like when you watch the Seinfeld episodes, you can see Jerry Seinfeld when it's a serious moment in the show. He can't stop laughing because he wrote the show, and he knows how damn funny the whole thing is. And you can see Aaron Judge when they're asking him, are you comfortable being the face of the Yankees? <laughs> and, and, and you look at his face, he's Jerry Seinfeld laughing at what his thoughts are inside, but his answer is, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm... I'm just doing the best I can every day. I'm trying to be in the moment. You know, it's it's all Derek Jeter's answer. That's right. I want to ask you about Judge. So one of the things that makes Judge different, say, from from uh, from Harper, is that Judge went to college. He did a full uh, mm-hmm. full four years at college, and then he came up slowly through the minors. A, double A, triple A. Boom. He's almost 25 years old. If he isn't 25, he is 25, he is he's 25. 25 now. And and 25. This is, he's his rookie. And Bryce Harper is 24 and has been around for five years or six years or something. How does that? Um, do you think that that helped him the maturity of going through all that, or has it really held him back? I mean, the great hitters of yesteryear and even today seem to be coming up at 2021. Well, well, your answer is right. But Bryce Harper spent his four years in college in the big leagues. That's right. You know, Aaron, Aaron Judge spent his four years in college in college. And I think Aaron Judge hit one homer. He had one homer his freshman year. I think he had two homers or three homers his sophomore year. And wow. Well, Bryce Harper, and that, that's why, you know, you see some of the things that Bryce Harper has done. You know, he's done it in his freshman, sophomore, junior year in college on on on, on international stage, and then people go like, "God, you know, come on, Bryce, what are you doing? Come on, grow up, man." Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, grow up. Yeah, look, okay, go, let's go back to our freshman year, sophomore, and junior years in college, and we were all like we, that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. We just didn't do it on the main stage, you know. Thank God, you know. Um, you know, so when you look at, you know, how that, you know, how that maturity evolves. And you look at where Bryce Harper, you look at, like, for example, that that's what's so amazing about, like, Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. I mean, LeBron James didn't go to college. Are you kidding me? Right. We're talking, you know, to, you look, we're talking to Rick you, Peterson, regular guest on our show, former Major League Pitching Coach. Rick, uh, you were talking about the, the coaching these pitchers as they walked into the All-Star weekend. You know, I, I hadn't thought about it much in that way before, that, that it's a chance for them to spend time with other great players and they might learn from that experience. What do you think the consequences are? What do you think the mental, psychological consequences are of 
being elected to and going to All-Star Weekend as a player? Well, it, what I say is that during the season, you gain experience, and you get better through your own personal experiences. When you go to the All-Star Game and you do well, and even if you don't do well, but you go to the All-Star Game and you go to the postseason, you gain wisdom. It's a whole different, it's a whole different level of experience. Is there any way it's there's a negative consequence, uh, Rick? Well, a player says, "Yep, I knew it. I'm an All Star," <laughs> and so now all of a sudden they try to be something they're not, or mm-hmm. maybe they, you know, we talk about this all the time that you know a person's not really that great. They just happen to have a, a particularly good first half. They make the All Star team, and it just reinforces bad habits, and now they're less likely to be flexible to learn because I'm an All Star. Well, you're exactly right because I think it's just when people, when people get so full of themselves, they put themselves into the future, and instead of being in the moment and saying, "Let me totally saturate this moment," you know, and I think, I think when you see it in other sports, you go back, go back a year plus, a year and a few months ago, and you look at Jordan Spieth on the 12th hole on Sunday afternoon, he's going to be the only player at 21 or 22 years old, the only player to ever win the Masters back-to-back-to-back on the 12th hole, and he put two balls in the water. Are you telling me that Jordan Spieth, with his abilities, can't hit a ball 145 yards and land it on land? Really? You can't put this ball on land? And as I said, we talked about this a long time ago, one if by land, two if by sea. You know, and and so you and he's never been the same. He's, so that's the negative consequence. He's never been the same. He was on the biggest stage he's ever been that anybody's ever been uh, in 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 professional golf. How good to, is it? Too to much? To was that too much to expect of a twenty-one-year-old? I mean, it's just absurd the pressure there, and and he's so young. I mean, how can he not get a little bit out of the moment? Well, how is it that well, anybody's exactly ever right. not able to get out of the moment? In, in those exactly. kind of situations. Exactly. And, that, and that's why you appreciate the greats of the greats. And, and that's why I think we all appreciate, I mean, for whatever reason, I think because of the experience I had in doing this book, it's probably one of the biggest growth spurts I've ever had in my life at this age. And, it, you know, because I've really, really sat more than ever in the mental game. And, and I, realize, I realize more than ever that, the mental game is the difference maker. You can have the greatest skills and you can be the biggest smarty pants and, and have all the knowledge that you can possibly have. If you don't have the mental game and know how to apply your skill sets and your knowledge, then, then you'll, never, you'll never really untap your potential. Rick, do you, and, is, that, is that at all relevant to what's going on with the Cubs right now? So you've been on some great teams and you've been on some teams that struggled. This is a team that is almost having a historical regression to the mean. And uh, they they must that that clubhouse must be challenging right now. What 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 do you think is going on, and what would you suggest the team do to try to get out of it? Well, number one, they're starting pitching, and 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 historically, starting pitching that goes to the World Series typically doesn't do well the next year. There's a big drop off. Too much use. Mm-hmm. Yep, because you're, you're pitching from. February, you, you, you show up in spring training February 15th, and you're finishing at the end of October. Interesting. But they abused the, the pitcher they most abused. They didn't, re, they didn't bring back. I guess that helps yeah, a little uh, bit. I, I will, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about physically with the, with the load, um, but I'm talking about the whole, you know, that whole thing. I mean, and, and you, look at, you look at Super Bowl teams coming back in the NFL, and, it, and oftentimes it's the same thing especially the team that loses. 
because there's a there's a huge you know there's a huge drop off. But when you look at their starting pitching right now, their starting pitching was number one in the league last year, number one in baseball, I think. This year, there's, I think there's 17. Yeah, so Rick, I was going to ask you a question. I'm not sure that we've asked you in our three-plus years on Wharton Moneyball with you. Is poor pitching contagious? So I just saw the stats for the Cubs. I mean, Arietta's having a bad season. Lester's having a bad season. Lackey's yeah. having a bad season. So is it – you know what? I mean contagious. I don't mean like a virus or anything, but can uh, – can a staff be jointly bad, like simultaneously, because of some sort of contagion effect? Yeah, absolutely, there's no question. Why? About it. What would be the would... what would be the cause of that? Like, you know, I I mean, I I'm watching Adi pitch. You know, he's he's doing poorly, but I'm pitching the next day. You know, what what would be the cause of any interaction effect between starting pitchers who are never obviously never on the field at the same time? Well, I think when you look at human behavior, it's it's modeling. You know, so you can't. It's the same for me when I play golf. I play much better golf when I play with good golfers than I do playing bad golfers. I've always wondered whether that was true in professional golf, whether in the pairings you see this within pairing correlation. It's so intuitive. I don't know. For, I, bet it's a sm- I bet it's in the data, but I bet it's a small You know, I, I've had this conversation with my son about music, and he claims exactly the same thing. When he's in a concert or has to perform in a, in a venue with much better, mm-hmm. much remember, better singers, performers, he does much but better. But remember, again, I'm asking Rick about starting pitchers in baseball who don't pitch on the same day. So I do know you model after the person right, that maybe. I, I know there's going to be. An, it's, the, it's the club you're in. Yeah, so Rick, you, you, you do feel that there is this kind of, over, like, if you like, bleed over between days. Yeah, but here's another major factor with this. So let, let's take the pitching. So you come into a series, and Lester starts the game, and let's say he pitches like seven innings and gives up one earned run. You know, they bring in a bullpen, and they do well. So, so on the other team, you know, you got – Probably you probably have five guys that were 0 for 4, 0 for 5 that day, and you may have four guys that were like 1 for 4, 1 for 5. Okay, so now they're now so the hitters that didn't do well now they come in the next day, and the next the next day starter does exceptionally well. It, now now you got five guys on that team that are 0 for 8 for 9, and you got a couple guys that maybe one one for one for 8, one for 9, maybe two for 9, you know, with with, the, with their singles, as opposed to you, the, the starter does terrible, and now you bring in your worst bullpen because you're not bringing in your, your best guys in the bullpen. So now you're not runs. You got guys, you got four guys on that team that were like two for four, three for four, three for five, whatever, and then you got another four guys that were two for four. You know, so the hitters come back the next day, and it's like, man, I'm, I'm getting hot right now. So let me ask you another a follow-up but related question. Was Greg Maddox a better pitcher? Because he was throwing at a different speed and angle than Tom Glavin and Smoltz, who when Smoltz was a starter, because they came in and threw hard, and he was kind of a change-up, not a change-up pitcher, but you know what I mean. Is there a positive? Of, was there? A, not saying Greg Maddox wouldn't have won 350 games, but how was that? Yeah, you, so you got different styles as well. You know, so you're not facing the same. You know, you know that that also factors into it. You know, but but what we're really talking about, you know, it, it, we're coming back to the mental part of the game, and, and and I think that's the new analytics and how to measure that, you know, actually measure that, you know, sabermetrically is going to be the new frontier in in evaluating performance levels because we we're, we're getting more 
more analytics of spin rates and exit speeds and launch angles and you know, every, everything else involved, batting average and you know, defensive metrics and so on down the line. But we don't have any metrics yet for the, for the mental game. And the mental game, is, 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 it's really the difference maker, without question. And, and you take a look at like when, when guys have setbacks, and this was actually the topic that I did when I, my TED Talk, was all, I, call, I called it mistaken identity. And it's when you have a setback in your life, and we all have them, and I'm not talking about a mistake or failure, but I'm talking about a setback, which is at the higher level of a mistake or failure. When you have them, we all go into this place in our mind. You know, I'm so stupid. Like, I'm an idiot. Like, what was I thinking about? And, and if, our, if our thoughts were broadcast over loudspeakers, people would think we're crazy. And we all go to that place without question. So the question is, how long are you going to be in this setback? And your opportunity for this setback is to prepare for your – again, I'm going to go back to Jordan Spieth. He still, he still has not bounced back from that setback over a year plus ago at the Masters. I mean, you look at him, even when he won a couple of weeks ago, he was stumbling at that finish line, without mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then you take a look at Tom Brady, on the other hand, which is so amazing. I mean, this man is so amazing to me. And I don't know if you saw some of the segments of the E60. If you haven't, you have to see it. I mean, th- th- this guy's at another level than everybody else. Rick, he walks into the locker room at halftime and says, guys, we have an opportunity to have the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Right, right, right. Oh, Listen, boy. Rick, Let's we're, not we're talk gonna, about we're this. Gonna, we're going <laughs> to have to step away for our break. Um, as always, we very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us, um, and we look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure, guys. You bet. That was Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach, recent author of a book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best when it matters most, and a regular guest here on Wharton Moneyball. That is the second quarter and the first half of our show this week. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey, practice professor here at the University of Chicago. University of Chicago. How did I say the University oh, of Pennsylvania? You do have a degree from there. I go backwards sometimes. Sometimes it's Diggs, sometimes it's Yale. This, but I'm at Penn, actually. This is University of Pennsylvania. You've I'm been with there my, now a long time. Almost six years. Penn, my, my faculty colleague, Zadi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, co-hosting the show. Shane is out. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. Uh, eight, eight, you can join the conversation, and we wish you would. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We are just off the phone with Rick Peterson, and we have another guest coming up in the next half hour. Uh, we're going we're to be joined shortly by John Wertheim at, from London. And, in fact, John, we are told, is on the line. John, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How are you? Good, we, to, uh, good to be with you. I'm warning you. Um, we, we, got, we got live matches, so I may have to duck out at any second here. Well, uh, we appreciate you making the time for us. John, as our listeners may know, is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's also, I think, Easily one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. Multiple books cited in n- numerous 
anthologies. One of our favorite books is a book he co-wrote with Toby Moskowitz, a book called Scorecasting. If you're a fan of sports analytics, it's pretty much a must read. And John's a big tennis fan. Every every major, he's out there. He's telecasting for various networks, and he's on site for the tennis tournament. So we wanted to reach out to you while you were there, John, see how things are going. What's been your experience out there so far? Uh, it, it's been a good Wimbledon. It's um, it's kind of a tale of two... Uh well, it's a tale of two genders. On the men's side, you've got you know, Nadal lost a, a crazy match two days ago, as, right. as uh, you may have seen. But other, otherwise, it's been business as usual. The usual suspects are uh, playing today in the in the quarterfinals: Federer, Murray, uh, Novak Djokovic. And the women's side, with Serena absent, it's been wide open. The good news is there's been a lot of good women's battles, but the women's results have been uh, just crap shoots and throw a dart and really have not been as suspenseful but we've seen uh you know the, the best in the game so john this is eric bradlow can you tell our listeners here on wharton moneyball why you think that um you know in some sense the men's side we all know the statistics i think they're in the last 13 or 14 years there's only been three men's uh grand slam winners out of the you know chilich won one and del patro won one um etc out of the top five men but on the women's side that like, we have venus williams kanta muguruza and ribakova play why is there so much concentration on the men's side, but possibly not as much on the women's side? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I, I think the, the easy answer is just these guys are really, really good. We're talking about four guys, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, who've just dominated, as you say, they've just dominated tennis. You know, we're, we're on more than a decade now. I mean, Roger Federer, who could well win this thing on Sunday, he won here for the first time in 2003. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going on 14 years here. And on mm-hmm. the women's side, you've got Serena Williams, who literally has won almost half the majors played in the last 15 years. With her not being here, it's real. I mean, some of this is just kind of, you know, concentration and probability and math. And uh, you, you take out someone who's won as much as Serena, and, and suddenly it becomes uh, this free-for-all. But, but I also think that tennis now, the players are going much further on in years. I mean, there are eight guys in action today. Only two of them are in their 20s. So I think the fact that the game's become more physical, careers have extended, I think that's also a help with the concentration. It means a guy like Federer, who turns 36 in a few weeks, can still be at the top of the heap. John, what's the best explanation for that? It is so shocking compared to, I mean, Eric's run through these stats for us before, but, you know, the heyday of our age when Connors and well, Borg, Borg and McEnroe, McEnroe won their last majors at like age twenty five and twenty six. Exactly. So what? What? Exactly. Why, this is a dramatic change. Is it just people are that much better conditioned, or is it something else? You know, it, it's a great discussion. I mean, I, I think some of it is is equipment. I think a lot of it, though, is is finances. That on the one hand, these guys are making so much money, they don't have to fly commercial, and they can have nutritionists and multiple trainers, and all that prolongs a career. But also, the other thing, too, is I just think the incentive structure has changed. And, you know, I I think there's there's a lot of incentive to keep going when, you know, the winner here will make three million bucks, and a guy like Federer with endorsements, I mean, he'll get you north of... uh, $50 $50 million in income this year, that's that's an incentive to keep going. So it, I think it is an incentive, but I don't see how that explains it. I mean, because you look at every other sport, you can't survive. The incentives are there, too, right? So why would the why would baseball players be washing up in their, by 30 these days, football players? They don't look so much different in, in the other sports than, than, say, tennis looks like an, a singularity compared to the other sports in the sense that you've seen this longevity there and nowhere else. Yeah, 
I've heard, I'd push back a little. I mean, you know, we had a guy, the defending quarterback of the winning Super Bowl teams, uh, well, well, that is the one. That is the one position that you do have. But, but this is—I mean—he is an anomaly that that breaks the the mold. The almost the exception that proves the rule for for uh, for football. But I mean, you were seeing the exact opposite happening in baseball, um, where the youngster seems to dominate. No one seems to last. We just had a home run derby. There was no no one in their thirties. No, you were close to their thirties uh, competing in it. It is surprising because in baseball you don't. It's it, you know you think about how much athleticism, kind of classic athleticism, right. is required. You don't think about right. batting as being that high on that. So, in basketball, you might expect them to wash out that quick, but not baseball. So, so John, yeah. so John, you had mentioned. Well, I think, well, I'll give you. I'll give you two answers. No, it's, a, it's a great question. I think one of them is that there's no 82 game season, right? There are no 162 games. Tennis players, to a large extent, can make their own schedule. Right, right. right. That's, well, right. like Federer not playing the French, as an example. Exactly, right. That's exactly what I was going to say. So Federer, you know, a lot of players, Serena, Federer, yeah. and Nadal, basically took the fall off. So there's... You that's know, big. The, uh, that's big. They sort of space things out. This is LeBron James deciding I'm only going to play 50 games a year. Or 35. That'll, uh, that'll add some years. Yeah, right, um, right, right. Yeah, so John, let me ask you, as you project yeah. forward, you had mentioned that you know of the eight men, only two of them are below the age of 30. And by the way, Ronich is the one that's, I guess, significantly below, but it's not like any of the others are that much below. Um, when you project out five years, let's pretend that Murray, Federer, Djokovic, <laughs> and uh, Nadal are all gone. And I, I'm using five years, but I, let's assume they're all gone. <laughs> At this what, rate, what's, no. Yeah, what do you see as the next generation? Like, who do you like? Amongst the next set of players, is it you know, is it Dimitrov? Is it Zverev? I mean, who who do you see as the next generation in the men's side? It's a great question, and I think that uh, I mean, first of all, I, I wouldn't assume that in five years any of these guys, much less really? all four of them, are going to be gone. I mean, if you told me Roger Federer would still be playing at forty, I'd, I'd say yeah, I could, I could see that. But <laughs> you know, it's funny because again, these guys have done such a heavy concentration of winning. Does it mean that these next generations are, are soft, or does it just mean these guys are such head and shoulders above the rest of the field? So, I, you know, a lot of people are big on Zverev, you mentioned, a German kid who's just 20 years old, um, you know, lost in, in the fourth round here, but sort of has everything raw material-wise to be a future number one. But, you know, in these again, these guys have done so much winning and have left only the smallest of table scraps for everyone else. It's really hard to know. I mean, is Grigor Dimitrov, who you mentioned, you know, perfectly nice player, but he's not quite at that highest level. In any other era, is this guy a multi-Grand Slam champion, or are the other guys? And I think you know, Serena faces the same thing on the women's side. She's done such a high proportion of the winning that it's sort of casual. We ask ourselves, is she that dominating, or is she just not have the competition? But I, but I think five years from now, um, Zverev is probably the best of a bunch. And again, he's only 20, so he's he's got some maturing to do. Wow. So, we, you know, without Serena there, we're kind of grappling, especially the casual tennis fan is kind of grappling for who are the big names. You need you need some big names well, to kind of Well, she does have your... a sister who's got a few exactly. Wimbledon titles. Venus, <laughs> Ve- well, tell me about that, because Venus is one, you know, five, o- five always Wimbledons. been pulling for, but she hasn't, she, she's been, you know, nibbling at it for the last few years, but she hasn't been serious contender, it seems, for a while. Is she, how is she shaping up this year? This year has been great. She reached the final of the Australian Open and then lost to her sister, and now she's in the final four here. So 37 years old. I mean, again, 35 is the traditional cutoff for the seniors tour. 
So when when Federer at almost 36 and, and Venus Williams at 37 are playing to this stage of a tournament, it tells you something about these shifting. What life what, cycles, what are but, those? I mean, I God love John McEnroe, and our youth was better because of him. But what are the, he's kind of a loudmouth about current generation players, and how, how does he how does he respond when he say, "Yeah, John, you didn't play competitively after 26 yeah. or 27. Here are these guys that are 10 years older than that. What what's his take on that?" Well, some of it is he's, he's in his late fifties. He's claiming he can still beat Serena Williams. But, um, <laughs> exactly. I, I think a lot of these guys say, "Listen, we we burned it so hard, and these guys have it so easy. They're flying on their net jets, and they've got this whole team. And if they, they don't feel a hundred percent, they're they're taking it off." I think they these guys feel as though they they burned it a little harder. But no, I mean, I think honestly, I think there are a lot of players that are second guessing the way they scoped out their career and the trajectory and the arc, and saying, "Wait a second, if I had just." Done a little easier. I, I could have even taken an entire year off and come back in my late twenties. And you know, heck, look at these guys. They're what thirty-five you, is nothing. Now. What do you think about? We were talking about. You had mentioned we were also talking about Venus Williams. What do you think is the role of the crowd in determining these outcomes? Because I'm looking at the matchup. We're all looking at this intriguing semifinal matchup with Joanna Conta, the first women, a British woman, to make the semifinals um, since I think Virginia Wade. Virginia oh Wade won gosh. it in seventy-seven, but. Venus against Joanna Conta. So who will the crowd be going for there? The sentimental favorite, Venus, five-time champion, age 37, or their beloved daughter, Joanna Conta? And what role do you think that might play in the outcome of the match? I will, uh, to, to quote Rience Priebus, I, I think the crowd is kind of a Please. big nothing burger. I mean, they make a lot of, <laughs> they make a big deal out of it here. You know, it's, it's the sixth man or the twelfth man. The truth is that, uh, you know, that the crowd isn't making any noise. Ideally, will the ball's in play. Um, you know, Venus Williams at this stage in her career has, has played everywhere in all sorts of different circumstances. I, like all crowds, I think tennis crowds like to feel as though they're, they're part of the show. But, but realistically, you know, if, if anything, honestly, it's an individual sport. So it's, it's not, uh, you know, we're, we're not watching the, the Sixers play here. They're not getting so loud the quarterback can't hear. I think almost the, the louder and more rambunctious the crowd that could even work against the uh, the, the British player, but um, you know the, the the crowd here will probably be for Conta, who, as you say, is the first British semifinalist on the women's side in uh, in almost forty years. But I, I don't see that having a big not not a big material impact. Got it. We're talking to John Wertheim. He is the senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's also executive editor there and the author of many books on sports, including one on sports analytics, scorecasting. Uh, we got I got to. Uh, we're, we're due up on the team. All right, John. Break thank- and serve coming. Can I call you back? Yeah, call us back. We're here for another 20 minutes on this segment. I, I want to respond to one of the things that John told us, which is, is incredibly relevant and fits in with the many things we've talked about in the show with the, the, the training analytics, which keep talking about the importance of rest and that the time off is actually valuable. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm actually, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm reading this biography of Ted Williams. Very interesting. And he's, he took five years off, not by his own choice. Right. Yeah. Three years was in World War II. Don't and, get me started. And you two years. this by, guy's stats. Right. If, by it, the way, Adi, do you read history after 1950 or is it exclusively Yankees well pre- the Korean War was 1950 oh, so Korean. let's he did two years Close. in the Korean War as well but Both. and that and that was actually a mistake it turns out he he he, he really should have resigned but he didn't think there was any possibility to ever go back into the Air Force and and then he was 
and there's so much controversy that the Marines really used him. Oh, really? Um, but he actually oh, wow. flew combat missions in Korea, which he did oh, yeah. fly in World War II. In fact, his plane crashed, and, and he almost died. So, But one of the things that he always, we always like to project, and Eric was, was saying, what if he took those five years, or Willie Mays did it too, and, and certainly um, the great, great players of yesteryear, DiMaggio did it. What if they didn't have those years? But the counter-argument is that they extended their career because of it. That's and Eric's sitting here I'm saying, no, he doesn't buy it. But uh, Ted Williams is... He's over 700 home runs if he plays those five. Would you agree to that? I, I absolutely agree with it. I mean, five, his three years, by the way, were at age 23, 24, 25. Oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> and the year before. And the other ones were like he in won his the early crown. 30s. Yeah, he okay. won the Triple Crown. So it's, I think there's a really interesting argument or thesis took, that, that John is putting out there that one of the chief reasons that these guys are still playing tennis at this level at 35 is because of basically lifestyle. Well, but also, it, let's listen to what, you know, you've got to give Roger Federer this is the greatest champion of all time. And he did something that takes humility, which says, I'm not going to play the French. He didn't say this, but this is how I interpret it. Because at my best, at the French, I'm not beating that other guy, Nadal. <laughs> and you know what? It's the hardest surface on my body. If I play the French, I dramatically lower my chances of winning Wimbledon. I'm not going to beat this Nadal. Maybe the Nadal who wasn't playing well, but I'm not going to beat this well, Nadal. Well, you're, so you're, you're saying that requires humility. I think that causes does. strong calculation. I think that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, I'm saying humility, but also a calculation yeah. on I'm going to maximize my expected number of major wins. And the way to do it, most people would say, I want to flip two coins, not one coin. And Federer's like, I'd rather flip a very good coin at Wimbledon right. than two mediocre well, coins and one where, in his own mind, this is a man who's won the French, by the way, once, but who's saying, I can't beat Nadal. Why yeah. would I want to flip two coins as opposed to one good one? No, but you have to add into the, the mix here that he understands that taking time off will help him. You that's use my the, point. That, and, and, that's and that's a better coin. That, you get a better Wimbledon coin because of the rest. And that's something that, that the McEnroe's didn't have to. They couldn't. They, they t- couldn't. They, they could, first of all, they couldn't afford it. I mean, that's the other. They make so much money with endorsements, with the actual uh, monetary prizes they win in these tournaments, which have gone up way higher than inflation. That he needed to compete all around the world constantly. I mean, we talk about there's four majors, four Grand Slams, but there are dozens and dozens of, of competitions throughout the year, and the top players historically well, you know played the, in them. They the don't USTA so much anymore. now, the one thing that's one of the big debate between the players and the union, if you'd like, is the USTA forces them to play a certain number of what are called Masters 1000 events, which are the events just below, if they want to be in the year-ending championships. So in some sense, this is one of the big debates between the players who say, look, we need rest. We're not robots. This is a physical, hard sport in us. If you don't play a certain number of sanctioned top-level events, you could be ranked number three in the world and not end up in that final event. They will not let you play. They won't play. let you into Wimbledon if you haven't no, played? No, 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 not Wimbledon. Okay. Not Wimbledon. But the year-end advantage champion, the, not the advantage. The, Do the, they probably, care so much? There's probably a lot of money on those things. There's not only a lot of money. There's a lot of, it's considered almost the fifth major. I've won the year-end championship. Okay. So you don't get to play in like your... Like only the top eight players qualify, but you won't get to play if you don't play a certain number of top events. So tell me this: how much is how much do you think is the rest versus John and quoting McEnroe? John quoting McEnroe um, mentioned other things like the the team and and you know by by extension training and nutrition and people cooking for you and all of that is very different now than it was forty years ago. I I think it's also the yes I do. And I think it's also the um, the efficiency of training. 
I think Roger we've, Federer we've learned we've learned how to train better. I'm going to say I think Roger Federer. I've seen some shows on him when he trains. He's got the equivalent of the Fitbit, but all over his body, mm-hmm. and so he's training in a suit that's measuring everything. Mm-hmm. And so he's got data that suggests, let's say, muscle weakness in an area, or he's not training as hard in an area. And so this, to me, is a huge advantage. The measurement side of training. So, guys, how, how compelling have you found Wimbledon in general? How much do you pay attention to Wimbledon? How do you how does it compare for you to the other tennis um, Grand Slam events? Oh, I love Wimbledon. I always thought Wimbledon is the premier of all of all four. Maybe I'm wrong, but but uh, it has the tradition. It has the, the the grass court aspect of it. I found particularly entertaining because it's so novel. You only see it at Wimbledon. You never see it any, any other time. Now, on the novelty, we've learned from Jeff Sackman, the the writer and tennis analyst, that. The most novel sport, the most novel surface analytically is clay. That if you look at, right. if you, if it's you, orthogonal to the others in very key dimensions. Right. So yes. you basically, if you're looking at power rankings on tennis players, you you get almost no signal from how they perform on. If you're, on clay, if you're right. power ranking on clay, you don't get but here's much, a, if any signal. Here's for how another they piece that I heard. Car- Carl Bialik um, was interviewed on 538's uh, Hot Takedown, and he described, and he's been on our show before, uh, that the Wimbledon matches are the most informative. Uh, just in general? Yes, if you want to predict your overall power ranking, the Wimbledon match- matches are overrated. By they the need way, to be overrated. I can see if, since you asked me how much I care about Wimbledon, since I'm obviously talking here on the radio on Sirius XM, but I'm also paying attention to the match, uh, Sam Query just broke Andy Murray to win the second set. Ah, so it's now one why, set that's, all. That's, that's why John, why John had to go. It's we now lost, one set all guess, between Query and Murray. We lost our guess because Murray dropped it. But I think if you set. asked, you know, this would be the, you know, you couldn't ask them, but let's imagine you did a survey of all players and you said, how many... Australian Opens would you have to win to make up for one Wimbledon? And I'm, I think most people would probably say five. Yeah, big number. Like, well, that's it would prestige be a big number. And... No, no, I'm saying I would take one Wimbledon versus five U.S. Well, what's, same, your same... what's your metric? For power ranking and forecasting no, no, no. or for no, no, just, no, no. Value just value as prestige as a player? Prestige like as Wimbledon a player. for sure. Okay, well, what's, the 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 Masters. what's the exchange this... rate? Oh, let's stay with tennis. What's the exchange rate between the other tournaments? Well, the, the I would say the U.S. Open slams. has the second. U.S. Open would have the second most prestige. And that's probably not quite parity, but pretty close. Cause you, maybe because here in the United States, I think we think of it. Two to one. Two to I was going to say two to one. So you really think Wimbledon is, is yeah. twice as. And have a what, French. What, um, French, I think, is is just doesn't matter. No, I don't agree at all. Because it's so. I mean, it, it's, it's a it's, different it's, skill, but it's, but it's iconic. It, but partly because it's so different, it's iconic. Maybe three to one against women. Yeah. Well, so this is by the way. This is by the Maybe way. Two and a half. I don't, I don't want to say the knock, but you know <laughs> what people will say is, how can Nadal be considered the greatest of all time when he's only one? Five other. You don't consider the right. answer no, no, no. is you, you don't, don't consider right. no. him the greatest and then, of all and time. And people also say so. Djokovic has feasted on the Australian Open, so his greatest tournament is the Australian. That's Come where on, he's. The Why, I bet the Australian is the same as the U.S. It's the same service. No, it's not worth the same in the minds of the I know, players. But I, I know, but why would why would? No, I'm just saying what people will say when people try to say, how you do you feast, rank? Feasts makes it sound as if it's like lower competition or different It historically surface. was lower competition. It was lower competition. For many, many years because it was Australia. It was hard Are to get to. Are you taking us back to the 40s again? No, 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 no. 70s and 80s. There were years where you see like Chris Everett didn't play the Australian. Hours. McEnroe didn't play the Australian every year. There were years where they did not okay, play helpful. certain tournaments. Okay, helpful. I love this thing that Adi mentioned about Bialik. Bialik's analysis, it says... If you're looking for power ranking, if you're trying to predict out of sample performance, the tournament that's most diagnostic is Wimbledon. You would not expect that because the surface is different. That's and right. So is there something, is is the surface, I mean, surface 
must be what explains it. Like you, like you turn things up a notch, and if people can still play well uh, at a higher speed, I've got a th- well, I was, so my theory was going to yeah. be the higher speed, and the thing that's probably the hardest thing to do at Wimbledon because of that higher speed is return of serve. So my guess would be that's the thing. You know, every you know, I hate to say it this way, lots of guys can hit the ball one twenty on their serve. But how many of the guys well, can return serve well? And I think that's probably your point, Cade, is yeah. the speeds are faster, it's more predictive of return of service, and that's kinda like it's kinda like defense. Defense travels well. Right. S- return of serve and the speed needed to move around the Wimbledon courts travels well. So, so mm. tennis analytics is somewhat th- is a little bit further behind some of the other sports in terms of public knowledge. In fact, where where what's known about it is is still behind. But Stephanie Kowalczyk, we actually had her, her on our show, um, and she's actually coming to uh, to talk to my Moneyball Academy on her on her way to the joint statistical meetings. She actually has invented a statistic that really relates to this specifically. What counts in tennis is is points returned one against your opponent when the opponent is serving. And in fact, for the most part, right. you can get rid of a lot of that. And you can simply say, take a, a ratio metric. I think she invented this, which is how many points against your opponent when the, your opponent's service is winning versus what your opponent is doing against you. Mm-hmm. And that that's really what matters. Hmm. Hmm. So it's essentially when you're breaking or you, yeah. you, when you're not serving, that's where the well, information is. Well, let's just remember, I mean, you just pointed out the key thing in tennis. Last time I checked... You can't break serve when you're serving. You break serve no. when the other person <laughs> yeah, is serving. Right. Yeah. And so the key so is breaking it, serve. No, but I'm saying breaking serve. But you're saying it's. I, I, let's relate it also to baseball, a sport you and I both love. You've talked about this stat all the time, which is just what fraction of the time. In fact, we were talking about this with my sons at the Phillies game of the day because now they're putting advanced stats up at the Phillies stadium. They were even talking about what fraction of the balls does the person get in play. So that's almost a way to think about tennis. If you can return the other person's serve, the ball's in play. So my guess is related to Stephanie's uh, metric will be just what fraction of the other person's serve do you even get back and get into play? Because that's got to be a huge predictor. I mean, how many times wouldn't you rather have four swings at the other person's serve, you know, four right. points back and right, forth right, versus right. two that you've given it's off almost automatically? Like, you're almost like looking for a statistic called aceability. I mean, right. how badly do you look on your on other other person's serves well, across is, the board? It's interesting, the the IBM Watson, you know, they're, they're, they're promoting so much of what they're doing. And, it's, and you know, for, for, especially around tennis. <laughs> yeah, especially around yeah. tennis. So they, they've come up with this, this, this stat for that's supposed to predict the excitement of a match. And what, what they do is they compare the ratio for both players, the ratio of the forced to unforced errors. So the closer those ratios are, the more evenly matched those ratios are, supposedly the more competitive and exciting the match is. So another, another attempt anyway to, to distill down to these kind of heuristics for um, understanding what's going on out there. Tennis is one of those sports we've actually, we've all talked about this quite a bit on uh, Wharton Moneyball. Um, you know, you remember in baseball, Adi, you and I used to talk about, you know, the old days you could look at a box score and get a kind of a sense of the game. Still can. You still can. I'm not sure in tennis you can do that. I mean, you can, but in other words, tennis is at the highest levels comes down to four, I don't know if it's four, half a dozen big points right. that don't show up in the box score. And you win the match. You know, Even if you beat somebody, oh, I crushed the guy. I beat him 6-4, All right, well, you got one break in each set. Mm-hmm. And that probably, that could have come down to one point in each of those games. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic, who I think most people agree, if it's not Andre Agassi, it's Novak Djokovic, the greatest returner of serve possibly in the game all time. 
it could come down to his match when he plays Federer potentially in you know two days, two or three points. And it's remarkable to me that tennis is that's the excitement of tennis. It's just a couple of points. Do we do do they talk about leverage? I mean, that's the in baseball you would call this leverage. And so they, do they talk about leverage in tennis? Absolutely. So you can get a running win percentage at any point during the match. Well, fortunately, uh, they've taken care of business in London or outside of London. And John is back with us. John, welcome back. I blame Andy Murray for that. Exactly. Aspect. Exactly. Uh, you what should as well. What's he doing dropping sets over there? He was supposed to exactly. he was supposed to be working through this. So can he know we have a podcast? <laughs> exactly. So we're talking to John Wertheim. John is covering tennis at Wimbledon. He has a, a habit of years now of attending um, all the Grand Slam tennis events. John is uh, an esteemed sports writer and executive editor at Sports Illustrated. We've only got five minutes or so. We're rolling in, of course, to the big final weekend over there. What are you looking forward to, and what would you suggest people keep an eye on as we as we hit the weekend and, and, and the semis before? You know, it's funny because this event's going to be over in, in four days, and yet these results in the next you know few hours really have huge bearings on sort of the bigger tennis plot. So if Novak Djokovic were to win this event, it's, it's a great story. He's won this three times, but the last year he's really been in this state of decline. Now he's with Andre Agassi. What a great story it would be, the comeback mm-hmm. of Novak Djokovic. If he <laughs> loses, then it's, well, boy, this guy was on top of the world 12 months ago. Now he's lost five majors in a row. Is he ever going to get it back? Right. So Roger Federer, age 35, if he wins again, it'll be just uh, you know an, an, another mark of excellence, a further distancing of himself from the rest of the field. If he doesn't win, then we say is the end near. I mean, it's really remarkable with these tennis matches, and you know with this event in particular, how these storylines are really so delicate and so fragile. And John, John can, Andy, can, can we ask you a question on that? Just because you're you are a sports writer, and and you and you and you manage a sports magazine, and yet you also are. A, sophisticate when it comes to analytics and so you know that those storylines are kind of overwrought right so how do you manage the tension between kind of the fundamentals underneath it and then the top line narratives that the public finds so compelling yeah it's it's a great question and i mean tennis really has yet to figure out data so it's it's kind of doubly uh it's thrown into sort of doubly stark relief in this sport it's I think an individual sport is, is different than a team sport in that regard. It, it's just sort of a different way to approach it. It's a different uh, role that, that data plays. Mm-hmm. But there, there's no question that some of the pitfalls that we, you know, you, you know as well as anyone that the sports fans fall into, you see that all the time here. And uh, the, the misleading statistics in this sport and the statistics that would be meaningful that aren't uh, – you can't find a metric on um, it. It sort of makes you write about the people more than the numbers. Right. How important is the potential? You know, two, they haven't won yet. You know, Djokovic hasn't beaten Burdich, although the data suggests he has a very strong chance. Federer hasn't beaten Ronich yet, but the data suggests he has a strong chance. How important is that match to the legacy of either of those two players? Like, if Djokovic had a dream or a hope, which everybody would at his level, to maybe be considered one of the greatest of all times, is that a crucial match in, you know, the narrative of his career? He can't lose it. I mean, uh, it, and which which is the irony that a lot of these top players, you know, you, they, they say you, you can only, you can't win a major in the first six rounds, you can only lose it. So if Djokovic wins this match, yeah, we expected him to. He's he's 25 and two against this guy, and now he's in the semis. He still has two more matches to go. If he loses, then it's catastrophic. 
And I think that's something we overlook sometimes, that these these guys that are at the, at the very top, it's, it's not symmetrical. I mean, if, if they right. lose, it's a huge story. If they win, it's, yeah, we expected that. If he, so, does, um, if he does make it through and he ends up with Federer, what's the implication of that match? Yeah, it, it's huge because the sort of great measuring stick in tennis now is Grand Slam titles won. Federer has 18, Djokovic has 12. And the other thing, too, is that you, you want a superior head-to-head record. So big, big difference. If you're playing right. for sort of greatest of all time, big difference between – you know, 18 to 13 and 19 to 12, especially when you also get a, a head-to-head in that as well. So, right. uh, no, that I mean, that's the thing with these guys now. It's really historic, and every match has so much. I mean, if, if Nadal <laughs> had won that fifth set and beaten Federer at the Australian right. Open in January, right. that's a hugely different story than what we have now. Well, we might be at 17 to 16 right now as opposed to exactly. 18 to 15. Hey, we're, we're not talking about Andy Murray. We've only got a minute or so here, but what's your take on Andy Murray? Um, I've never seen a defending champion sort of make less of his title defense, especially right. as a British player. Um, he, he looks to be a, you know, maybe ten percent injured. It does not not a lot of momentum coming in. You know, he won this thing last year and he seeded first, and yet I don't know a whole lot of people picking him to win. Wow. Okay. And 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 on the ladies' draw, we've talked about Venus a little bit. Others to keep our eyes on. Yeah, we're down to only four players. Uh, I think whoever wins between Venus and, and Joe Conto, the British player we talked about before, I think whoever wins that match is, is probably your champion. All right. John, thank you for taking the time, especially in the middle of all your other business over there. We loved hearing from you. We'd love to We wish you the best with what happens with the rest of the tournament. Anytime. You got it. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. That was John Wertheim, executive editor at Sports Illustrated, very well-known sports writer, author of many books, including Scorecasting, a great book on sports analytics with uh, Yale University professor now, Toby Moskowitz. That was John ringing us from Wimbledon as he takes care of business over there. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to sound engineer Daniel Bruno. Thanks also to Big Boss producer Patty Hall stepping into the difficult-to-fill shoes of Matt Johnson, no longer producing our show after taking a look around and saying, we're big enough to walk on our own. He's got other things to do. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my co-hosts and collaborators, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Shane Jensen's not in today. He will be back. I think he's going to be back kind of on the regular beginning next week, which would be nice. We're here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout, 1-844-WHARTON or 1-844-942-7866 or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Our producers stand by. They pick those things up. They feed them to us live. You can get on the show with an email, believe it or not. Also, Moneyball Twitter handle is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall if you want to follow us on Twitter. We're off the ground. We follow our guests. It's a great way to tap into the sports analytics world. We're just off the phone. Speaking of guests, just off the phone with John Wertheim. That was great fun. I, I actually I, loved your question to him about how he balances kind of the narrative and the story that, you know, sells magazines with someone like himself who knows analytics and how he balances the two. And I, I kind of, I'm paraphrasing his answer, but it was, you know, and sometimes I'm lucky because it's not as advanced in tennis. So in some <laughs> sense, it's easier to construct a narrative because there isn't as much analytics yet. Yeah. That's going on in tennis. Yeah, he. It, I mean, one of the great things about him is that he's a great writer and, he, and he's a great narrative builder and seer, but yet he understands the analytics side of things. And you know, it, it, 
that is a sport that even though it's a little bit behind the rest, it is coming. And, and, we, and we've heard about how it's changing training. It's slowly changing the way the game is covered. So we'll see more and more analytics in tennis. Guys, um, we talked a lot up front about baseball, mostly the, uh, the All-Star game and in particular the Home Run Derby. Uh, other things going on. It's been a hot little time in the free agent market for NBA. It have you guys been, been have yeah. you paid any attention to that? Is anything jumping out to you about what's going on with the NBA? Well, I was surprised to see that you know Kevin Durant signed a contract to stay with the Warriors and he took a pay cut. Such a good guy. Oh, all those all those but no, horns, let's, all those let's, but let's just but let's just guys. take a look at it. One of the one of the one of the it sounds like he's taking a pay cut to be doing something for the team, but the but financially it might not be a bad move for him because winning a championship probably was worth more to him financially than being with another team making now, more we, money and not winning say is that, that right how does that translate like it doesn't they don't get enough bonuses to no make. no it's, 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 it's endorsement yeah. it's in star also, power how about the following no one's brought this up at least that i've read about but i'd love your guys opinions on it would you agree that if he were still on oklahoma city that he would have to carry, for them to win a championship, a larger burden than he does now. Sure. Okay. So how about he's maximizing his lifetime player value by, I'll use the Cade Massey number, if LeBron could only just play 35 games. Well, Kevin Durant's not going to play just 35 games, but he only actually has to play about 30 games that matter because he's got Clay Thompson and rest, Steph Curry. He can, he can rest. Him, uh, yeah. He doesn't have to carry the team to win. So he may be extending his career by one or two years. Let's multiply that by 35 yeah. million. That's 70 million more on the back end. He may be doing the exact right thing, even if he he's not being generous. He may be maximizing his lifetime right. player value. That's a good point. We, now that you break it down analytically, and we say, you see, there's lots of upside. That there's a lot of upside to it. A lot of upside. Being with a better team. I mean, that's, what that's well, so. Let me, let me just say that that is a, there's a general idea there about these NBA super teams. It's not just about having this collection of assets that can overpower the other side. It's also about lessening the burden. And if we're right, and it seems like this is a major theme in what we hear when we talk to people across sports, that load and training and rest is as important as it appears it is, and people are learning it is, that may be kind of this ancillary, almost unintended benefit of the super teams that they're building. I mean, how much... How much? Yeah. How much better is Harden going to rest at night and over the course of the season now that he's got Chris Paul on the court with him? Well, I think it's not just about rest, but he's not going to have to do all of, if, uh, hopefully not a lot, of the primary ball handling duties. So he's now, now you know, in some sense, what's a basketball court, 94 feet or something? He's been playing the entire 94 feet of the court. Defense, bringing the ball up. Well, Chris Paul can handle the ball a little bit. And so maybe Harden gets to exert effort at the crucial moments more. Right. Look, even if you said the following, the only thing Chris Paul's going to do for that team is James Harden will be 20% more fresh in the last two minutes of the game because Harden's not having to bring the ball up the court and being hounded on defense as much as he was. Right. That may be worth an infinite amount towards the actual team. So right. that's where these bleed-over effects can absolutely happen. Mm -hmm. I agree. I like Harden better this year, not so much because Chris Paul's a great pass and everything else. He's going to be more yeah. rested. Good, good, good. All right, other the other teams have been very active. There's so been it, a lot of active. Is there any team that looks like they can take on the Warriors at any level next year? Sure. I mean, I mean, you got to be more interested in the Rockets now. We've just been talking about that. Uh, the thun I mean, look, I know everyone's going to be an underdog to them. Period. Yes. And but you know, injuries happen. They knock out one of their top guys, and it's a, I mean, they've got more depth than most. But that would that, that would, would bring them into the territory. 
Oklahoma City. Presty is working some magic down there. At least, at least this year, he's got George. He pulled Paul a, George. He yep. Pulled another All Star to to help Westbrook out. Um, Let's. I think the, here's the way I would view it again. Maybe this is the way. So last year in the Western Conference, you asked about can, can challenge the Warriors. Let's say even in just in the West, they went four no four no four no. Okay. <laughs> so now the question is, Adi, how much better? Do you believe the other teams have to get? Remember, I said 4-0. They did not lose a game until they got to the NBA Finals. So the ground that the other teams have to make up is really significant. And so you say overtake them. It's a mile no, away. they're not going to overtake them. It's Even, a I, mile I said compete away. with them. Oh, yeah. compete. Well, Santa, people would argue if uh, Kawhi Leonard hadn't been injured yeah, in that sure. first game. Sure. They, I don't want to say steal. They were throttling the Warriors. Yeah. They, if they win that first game in Golden State, maybe that's a six-seven game series. I don't know what it is, but yeah. so I would say San Antonio. There's no reason why San Antonio did win sixty plus games last year. Are they dealing Aldridge? That's the discussion. The discussion point is they'd like to, but you know this is the old challenge. You know the game theory part of it. When everybody knows you're trying to deal mm-hmm. the guy, how uh-huh. much are they going to give you for the guy? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's a big challenge. But yes, they would like to deal Aldridge. Okay, so in the East, the Celtics acquired a former player of um of 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 the Brad I've just dropped the Brad coaches. Stevens. I was gonna say Brad Gilbert. Too much tennis on the brain. Brad Stevens is an old player from Butler. Exactly. Gordon Haywood brought him over from Utah. And interestingly, the the guys who run the numbers say that their expected wins are actually lower after these transactions than they were before the free agency period. Well, the question is, is that due to uh, his coming to the team, or is it due to the, potentially the loss of Avery yeah, it's, Bradley? It's a, it's a loss. Well, yeah. Avery Bradley and the other players yep. that they had, they had to, to get, get to they clear had to, room. Right, yep. to clear cap room. Um I'm going to say this. Actually, I meant to say this to John Wertheim uh, when we were our, our discussion with him. So why can Serena uh, Venus Williams excuse me, still play so well at age 37? I'm going to refer to one of my favorite quotes when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played Julius Irving in a one-on-one. You guys don't remember this. They used to have these one-on-one matches between all-stars. But they were both like 40-45, and Kareem destroyed Julius Irving. And it wasn't because he was in better shape. As Kareem said... You can't teach height. (laughs) And height doesn't get old. And Kareem is still seven foot two. And Venus Williams (laughs) is still six foot two, six foot three. And so she gets to the net and she can cover a lot of ground. She's a serve and volley type player and she gets the net and she can still cover a lot of ground. The Boston Celtics are basing their team on a five foot nine, one hundred and sixty pound player. Oh, you've been short on him since midseason. I've been short short on him. uh, Good pun. (laughs) I've literally been short on him for a long time. No, what? Did the Celtics make some moves? Over well, the- they got Gordon Haywood. Yep. I mean, from the and, Utah and- Jazz, and so that was their big acquisition. And by the way, you know, I, we're happy about it. I'm happy about it. They traded down in the draft. The guy that got Jason Tatum from Duke looks phenomenally yeah. good. I mean, it's summer league play. You can only put so it. He looks really skilled. So it by, allowed by, us to get by, number one. By the way, wise move. They they knew they could get their guy. They were going to take him where they were, or they could drop back a couple and still get him, so let's the, do it. The Cade Massey system should say, you don't even care if you got your guy. Well, you you got a, no, 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 I'm saying, they didn't go from one to 15. They went from one to three, and they grabbed another future first rounder, yeah. which may be a top five or ten pick. Wouldn't your system say, that's two coin flips from the top end of the distribution. You'd rather have that than one at almost any cost. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. For, but in basketball, number one is a big chunk, a difference away from two and three. 
there is. They a, just know a, they a, didn't want him. Is that why this year? Well, they 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 were happy with the guy they got. They didn't need. They've got their guard, and the top two guys mm-hmm. were guards. Speaking of whom, absolutely. Um, well, the, what happened with the Sixers here? So Fultz hurt himself. Hurt himself, and, but it doesn't look like it's it's. It didn't it's look serious. Ending. No, 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 not at all. Matter of fact, he's going to be back in back. He may even be back in basketball activities. You know what's interesting is the one minute of that game that I was watching because I like to watch summer league play was. Literally, 30 seconds before that happened is when I put it on. And so I'm watching this, and literally, I'm screaming in pain because it looked really bad. He stepped on the back of some other guy's foot, turned his ankle. Um, no, he's about he's out for about a week. It's just a high ankle sprain. All the x-rays, CAT scans, everything are negative. So he's he should be fine. Does this make coaches, teams, players rethink the role of these early leagues? The summer league. Yeah, what is this? Yeah, what but, is this summer league thing anyway? It's not the regulars. It's the, it's the new well, guys. It's w- the new guys, but there are some, basically it's guys trying to make the team mm-hmm. or trying to make a team. Even if they don't make their team, they're trying to demonstrate their skills. Usually second-year players also play in them. Right. So it's basically trying to get people, you know, is it, is it a function of the fact that the so many players are playing in college for one year and they yes. just need to showcase and get out there and play because there's no middle ground anymore. There's no minors. I mean, we look at the, the Sixers. They, they've been drafting number one, number two, number three players for like how many years now? <laughs> when are they going to be good? And the question is, well, when the when their players grow up. Yeah. <laughs> but this and, is back and, to, and quit getting hurt. So is yeah. So thing, when are we expecting anything from the Sixers? But let yeah, me also tell, say, let's, 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 let's let's say that. that. Yeah, let me not only talk about that, but Kate, <laughs> let me go back to your point before we get to the Sixers. Like, why would guys play this? We all, we're all economists of some types, you more than Adi and I. Let's use backward induction. So, okay, so maybe I shouldn't play them in the summer league. Okay, um, maybe I shouldn't play them five-on-five <laughs> five in practices. Because, you know, damn it, yeah, those practices, yeah, you could yeah. get hurt in that five-on-five yeah. five in practice. Okay, so now you're coming into the season and you've had no full-court scrimmages. Besides, forget your skill level. You don't have the win. You don't have the stamina. You're going to have to play 80 games if you don't get hurt anyway. Yeah. So if you're not physically trained and ready to do it. So that's what I'm saying. It's always don't play question. the summer league. Well. Don't play practices. Don't play this. You've got to play when you can play. I just don't buy this theory. Keep them out to prevent injury. They could get injured in a five-on-five scrimmage down at the Wells Fargo Center. uh, This is Eric Bradlow, 70-year-old linebackers coach. He's been in football for, you know, a few decades. That's his philosophy. There we go. Just play. (laughs) Yes. It's it's just the opposite of what we're learning analytically. Exactly. exactly No, no, no. I disagree with you. Eric, you got to realize. you got got to acknowledge. I know you do. There's a trade-off, and we're just asking where the sweet spot no, no, is. But I, We're not I know. saying put them all on I, a shelf no, 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 for three I know, three but months. let me go back to the point I made, which I, obviously maybe I said it in a tone that it was missed. Given you would like Markel Fultz to play a significant number of the regular season games that count, okay? So you have the trade-off is if he doesn't play much in practice or in the summer league games, forget his skill level, whether he'll be ready to play those games or not, he won't have the physical stamina and the training level to be able to perform in those games. And so by having him practice and play in the summer league, yes, you're raising the probability of injury. You are. But on the other hand, you may be lowering the probability of injury during the regular season. That's my point. Maybe I mean it depends on what you what you need to I mean I, I look I, they've got to play some for sure but it depends on what what is developed in that particular kind of interaction that you right. can't develop somewhere else in football for example it's a big question very in football, different and there are very different philosophies on do you go hard during the week do you do you do full scrimmages during the week do you tackle to the ground there's even that level of question but there's a there's a there's a there's an aggression that you have that you train you see you assess and you train. In those kinds of 
interactions that you can't get anywhere and else. And I was just referring I, to that. I don't, I don't know, know that, that that's you, true with conditioning, well, then maybe, by the way, this is, I don't say we disagree. This was partially the point I was trying to make is that I don't think you can simulate the conditions, I'll use your words, Kate, of of playing in an NBA game by just working out on the treadmill or jogging, etc. You need to get out there on the court <laughs> And you need to actually. There are it's more a tr- choices than just working out on the treadmill or jogging. There, there, All right. There, well, jogging we can agree, to, we can agree to disagree. And I was making an analytics <laughs> argument for lowering the likelihood of injury during the season well, by training properly in the off season, including playing summer what, league what games. I'm, what, I'm, what I'm pointing out is that, that, that because the players are so young, and more and more of them are so young because they don't have the experience of playing in college as they all used to. Yeah, that they need all this time to get good and get trained Develop- and, and develop. I mean, look, and- development's a huge thing. Even during the season, development's a huge thing. Teams yeah. have guys that they don't know whether they can play or not, and they want to see them on the court for assessment and for development. So in the real season, this matters. So I, I grant, I really do, I really do grant the point on the Sixers. Before before we get too far, I mean, is this? I think I feel like this is finally the time to be excited. Simmons is going to come back. Embiid yep. has got a year's experience under his belt. You've got now this number one pick in the draft, the top point guard prospect this year. It seems like this is finally the time to get excited. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean. Yes, it depends what you mean by you're excited. You're wrong or yes, it should no, be excited. No, you're right. You they, should they be excited. They might make the playoffs this They year. might make, yes. Well, they won 28 games last year, which was up from 10 the year before. I don't, you know, Embiid, Joel Embiid only played 31 games last year uh, out of, 82. Uh, ben Simmons played zero games yeah. out of 82. Um, Dario Saric was one of the other people who's now a second-year player. He, I mean, so Dario Saric was the offense last year, right? He okay. was a lot of the offense, especially when Embiid was out. Yeah. And so now you say, essentially, you have Saric, Embiid, Fultz, and Simmons. This is a remarkable four players. In five years. What They're still mean? young. They're no, no, still, I understand I mean, that. The, the you, old guy on the Sixers right now is Robert Covington, who's like 25, 26 years he's old. He's the old guy, And right. he's kind of the old guy. I have the guys that's going to play meaningful just put minutes. In, in, t- how old but, is LeBron? How old is Steph Curry? How old is Kevin Durant? LeBron, how old are, LeBron, uh, James, is, LeBron James is 32. So what are the great players to be? What, what's your peak in, in NBA? Your peak period? I would say most people 28 say 28 to 32? 27 I w- to 31? I would say 28 to 32, that except late. it is, except... Not if you start it by the age of 18. Yeah. And so, I don't know you guys, I think I said this stat a couple of weeks in Wharton Moneyball. LeBron James already yeah, has played though. more minutes in his career than Michael Jordan. 40-year-old man. I mean, he's well, Jordan was 40 when he finally retired. Maybe he should have retired I mean, a year or two earlier. Effect, effectively. A 40-year-old LeBron man. LeBron years. LeBron years. Yeah, he's played like, more minutes than Michael Jordan. And they're yeah. hard. The hard the and hard they're minutes. hard minutes. So, but I think as a fan, Adi, you're kind of pushing it this a little bit. As a fan, as long as you're watching guys you know are going to be around, have the possibility of being great, or you're going to watch them develop, you'll accept an eight seed or maybe just missing the playoffs if you're looking at the five guys that are kind of going to be the core going forward because you're excited just to see them grow. Look, the Sixers also have three more first-round picks over the next couple of years. They traded one of them away to get up to Markel Fultz. But let's not remember, that wasn't even their pick. So right. they still, I mean, yeah, at some Top point. first-round pick? Lottery, it's, it's lot, lottery first-rounds or what are the It's an interesting thing. It goes if it's two to five. Yeah. If it's the number one pick, the they Sixers don't keep it. <laughs> yep. If it's six to ten, the Sixers keep it. It's only if it's two to five, and then it reverts to unprotected the following year. But the Sixers at this point, most people would agree, we don't need more draft picks. We need to start winning. We need experience in the playoffs. 
I think that's what most people would say. And we're hopeful. I'm hopeful that this is the year that right. we finally make the, the playoffs. Year, well, it starts, I think it starts. But making fun. the playoffs in the East doesn't mean that doesn't, much. Doesn't mean a whole lot. No, no all you the stars make, are in the West. You might make a run. You well, you, speaking of that, did you see the analysis on 538? No. It basically said the B team. So they they ranked players. No, yeah, that's right. The B team in the West, meaning you rank players by, let's think of it as wins above replacement. The B team, the second group of five in the West, is better than the starting five in the East. The second five in the West, based on wins above replacement. So I think the top ten players in the NBA are in the, in the West. No, no, well, LeBron James, number one's in the East. But ignoring oh, LeBron right, James, right, right. I'm saying... He said the collective as well. The collective, yeah. the total right. sum of player strengths of the second five in the West yeah. is better than the starting five in the East. And so most people think, and in fact, this is like a historic disparity of like the top 30 war players in the NBA, only two of them are in the East. So how much of that is chance versus, it seems like when you see a super team come together like Golden State, the the, the Sam Prestes of the world have a choice to make, and Daryl Morey. It's like, you either are just not going to be competitive for the foreseeable future, or you really get serious about building right. your team up. And so it's it's almost because the Golden State is so competitive over there that the other teams have to draw the talent just to even make their seasons relevant. You do, but the real challenge you face if you're in the Western conferences, damn it, I wish Thompson and Durant and Curry and Green were old, but unfortunately they're not. So now you've got a problem <laughs> yeah. of like, so well, eventually LeBron, I'll wait till LeBron's going to decline. But these guys are 27, 28, 20. I mean, they may be good for another three, four, five years. It's so not that's, good. that's it's not, not good. good. For the NBA. You can't it's wait that. Good. I mean, how, if you're Sam Presti, you're going to say, "Well, we'll wait till the Rockets can overtake them." That may be five years. It's I not, mean, there's no, there's no, they're not near their decline phase. Trivia question for you: What happens three weeks from tomorrow? It's just some NFL thing. Oh, it's got to be. be some NFL. It's got to be. People <laughs> report the camp. The camp. Hall yes, of Fame it's game. Camp. Hall of Fame game. Hall it's fame. football. Wait, Hall, what is Hall of Fame game? What is it? It's the first preseason game. Oh, it's the first preseason. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, so it's not even just report to camp. That no, must be like tomorrow. That, this is what's amazing. Uh, people are doing it's only camps three, already. Three weeks away that we're actually going to have a, a TV game. I mean, it doesn't matter, but it's the first official game. I think it's the Cardinals at the Cowboys, maybe. And then four weeks from tomorrow, preseason starts. So and what are you looking at at the NFL? What is your... Oh, I don't really what are you give a damn about the NFL. Well, I've got a team or two that I care about for various reasons. But really, I mean, if, if college football starts in three weeks, that means... I mean, if, if pro football starts in three weeks, college football is basically in the same neighborhood. So we've got summer camp just around the corner. And guys are coming off of summer vacation. The talk is heating up. And we're kind of there. The beginning of it is kind of now. Is there any reason not to use our priors for college football, like, you know, it's going to be Alabama or Ohio State or, is, you know, is there any Auburn? I mean, I don't know. Is there any reason not Clemson. to use our Clemson? Is there any reason not to use our strong priors and say these? There's just got, no information Audie, in it. We've made so much progress. With yeah, you. You're you have. around Clemson. I mean, just a few years ago. Uh, nothing, can you imagine? Nothing. Uh, uh, I've been doing research on college football. It's going to come. I'm going right. to have a lot of knowledge. So yeah, I'm glad we just did two hours without any football. I hope you guys are soaking up all this baseball talk because football is just one uh, We quarter. did tennis, but too. Your question, your question is spot on. That priors, you know, there's there's much more regression to the mean in pro than there is in college. And if you want to know who's going to be great next year, who has been great the last few years is a pretty good heuristic. And you would expect Alabama and Ohio State. One flip in the ACC, most are predicting Florida State over Clemson. That we'll see some regression from Clemson. They lost too much. But regression is going to be like 9-3 and three or something. I mean, they've built a lot. That's not a fluky thing. They've built it over there. But Florida State is 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 expected to leap them this year.
And they were close last year. I mean, they were a good, a yeah, very they, they, good team. They were good. But you've got other things going on around the country. Like Washington has really come. Last last year they, they kind of arrived, and, and they're going to stay there for a while. USC has slowly made its way back from But isn't this promotion. exciting? We've now mentioned six, eight, ten teams. We just got to get a, play, a real playoff system in college football, and we'll be great. Well, you know, progress. We've got, we've got, progress. We've got, we've got a few years under our belt with the, with the playoff, which is a lot better than a it used to A lot better. Be. So, guys, that has been another show, another two hours of sports analytics. We do this every Wednesday. Thanks to my co-hosts, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Thanks to Shane Jensen, his moral support from his sabbatical. We'll be back next He'll week. We'll be back soon. Patty Hall stepping in, filling in, making the show happen. Daniel Bruno, of course. Our our intern, Zach, and, and Seamus, you guys are providing huge information for us. Thanks to you listeners. Come back and join us in a week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.